You are listening to the No Formula Podcast, episode number six. Laura Roeder is the founder of Meet Edgar, a social media manager tool. Today, Edgar has over 5,000 paid users and won Best Company to Work At in 2019. In this episode, Laura reveals how she grew her business to over a million dollars in revenue within the first year of launch, and how her business model allows her company to scale painlessly. She also provides insight on how to fully manage a remote team and why being nice is killing your success. Visit meetedgar.com to learn more about Edgar's smart composer feature that automatically writes your status updates. In the meantime, continue listening to hear about Laura's experience as a business mentor and what she thinks is the biggest mistake entrepreneurs make when starting a business. The No Formula Podcast offers a glimpse into the lives of real entrepreneurs who possess a variety of experiences and backgrounds. Through raw conversations, learn about their passions, journeys, setbacks, and milestones. Join host Laura L. Bernhardt as she confirms that there is, in fact, no formula to success. Get inspired and stay motivated throughout your entire journey. Subscribe today. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for being here today. Yes, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Yes, this is great. First time talking to another Laura, so I'm super (laughs) excited. (laughs) But let's just jump right into it. And I kind of want to go a little bit back in time and go back to your university. So you graduated from the University of Texas. Yes. Then you jumped into a corporate job right away, right? Yeah, I mean, corporate is sort of overselling. It was a small, a small local ad agency. Okay, so you worked for someone else, but then you then you jumped into freelancing about two years later. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know what prompted you to actually make that jump from working for someone else to working as a freelancer. So there, there were kind of two major things. One was the work, and one was the lifestyle. So. On the work side, I was working as a designer, a graphic designer and web designer. And the thing about being a designer is that it's a very siloed, single track kind of work. Like you design all day, right? Visual design is is really all you do. And the good thing about being at a small agency is I really got to peek in on client meetings and client strategy and stuff like that. And I thought all that stuff was really, really interesting. I liked being a designer, but I really was fascinated by marketing strategy and branding at the same time. So I thought, oh, how can I do how can I do that too? I thought, should I be an account executive at the agency? And it's like, no, then I wouldn't get to do the design. So I kind of figured out, oh, well, if I worked for myself, I would be doing all the business stuff too. It's actually what a lot of people hate about freelancing is what drew me to freelancing. A lot of people, you know, just want to design and they don't want to deal with clients and deal with the business side and they start freelancing and they're like, oh, this sucks. Now I have to run a business. <laughs> you know, I thought, yeah. I thought I was just going to be able to design or I really wanted to run a business. So that was half of it. And the other half was, you know, so many people become entrepreneurs because of the, the time freedom and lifestyle freedom. And that was definitely a big factor for me as well. I felt so frustrated by having to go to an office all day, every day, you know, having such limited time off. And I saw friends who had more flexible work situations. Or if I had a day off work, I'd go to the coffee shop in the middle of the day and be like, who, who are these people? You know, now everyone works remotely. Now it's more common. This was yeah. like 
15 years ago or whatever. And I'm like, who are these people in coffee shops in the middle <laughs> of the day? Like that looks really fun. I want to, I want to do that. So that was a big driver for me as well. Okay. So you see, we're actually surrounded by people who were entrepreneurs, freelancers, right? Well, I, I became surrounded by them very quickly. I oh, mean, okay. before I quit my job, I, I just like literally saw them and I didn't know who they were. I'm just like, Ooh, <laughs> that's a person with a laptop. What are they doing? But then as soon as I quit, I, I was very deep into, I lived in Chicago at the time and I'd go to a lot of meetups and networking events and stuff like that and really gave myself a strong entrepreneur community right away. Awesome. And if I'm not mistaken, your freelance work was mostly in websites? Yeah. Yeah. So when I first quit my job, that was my first business, um, designing websites. And you already knew how to create the websites, right? Yes. I had taught myself how to code, um, really? when I was a kid, what? I'd, been doing, <laughs> I'd been doing that for a long, like since the early internet, you know, I would just create my own site, you know, when it was just hand coding HTML. I mean, this was like in 1995, 1996, mm -hmm. a really, really long time ago. So I knew how to code websites. Like I've never considered myself a developer. And also I didn't really keep up with that knowledge. I was much more of a designer than a web developer. Um, but yeah, I could design and build a, a, a basic website. Oh my God, that's awesome. But what motivated you to, to learn at such a young age? It was just a fun thing to do. You know, that was, that was a really, that was a really fun, exciting time in the internet when everything was new and there were no tools at that time. So you just kind of, if you wanted to participate in what was happening, you had to learn HTML. You know, if you wanted to, if, if you really wanted to be a part of the internet, really, you just had to hand code your own site because there was, there was not that much else to do yeah. online, I guess. <laughs> like if you were interested in being a part of the whole thing, um, it was just kind of a natural progression. And, you know, basic HTML is, is really, really easy to, I mean, I'm just talking like write the word bold and brackets, right? Like I'm talking mm -hmm. about really basic stuff. So it wasn't, okay. it wasn't hard to learn. Okay. But awesome. Because then you made it your business. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So you start this freelancing. At what point did you realize you needed to turn it into something more? So when I quit my job, I was making about 30,000 a year, a little less than 30,000 a year. So that was kind of my first goal is, okay, I want to replace my full-time full -time income as a freelancer. So my first year freelancing, I hit that goal. I made oh, 30,000. Wow. Like, this, is, this is great. This is amazing. So then my next goal was to double that. I think this is like a very common, you know, goal trajectory <laughs> that people have, like replace my income and then make more than my income. So I'm like, okay, I want to make 60K. So I did that the next year freelancing. So I'm like, okay, what's my next goal going to be? So then it was six figures, right? Everybody wants to have the six, the six figure business. Yeah. And that's when I really looked at my business and I'm like, uh Oh, I can't, I can't make a hundred thousand with the model that I have now because I'm at capacity with 60,000 and I can't double my rates because I've only been doing this for two years. I was, you know, I wasn't like <laughs> super experienced. I mean, maybe I could have gotten away with it. Who knows? Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't feel like I could double my rates. I knew I couldn't increase my capacity that much. So I'm like, oh, wait, this, this isn't going to work 
to make a hundred thousand. Should I do an agency? And like, I knew I didn't want to do an agency because I come from an agency and I saw all the problems with that business model. So that's when I moved into the social media consulting world, which, you know, within a few months I discovered the world of online courses and I created my first online course in, I guess it was 2008. Yeah. Oh, wow. You and made an online course? I did. You had to do it all yourself then. <laughs> there weren't any of the like tools or platforms or it's anything. It's just crazy because now that's so popular, but you did yeah. it back in 2008. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely newer than, you know, there were definitely a lot fewer people doing it. And once I discovered that model, I was like, oh, that like, this is for me. I love this. This is such a great match for me. Um, and I was able to achieve that 100K in revenue that next year once I switched over primarily to doing uh, online courses about social media marketing. Oh, okay. So it was a lot of courses because I think it's called, it was called LKR Studio. Um, that, yeah, like by the end of that business, it was called LKR social media. Okay. Social media. So it, it turned into more of like teaching in, mm -hmm. in courses as opposed to consulting. Yeah. I never actually did a lot of consulting. I found that courses were a much better, better model for me because I never really was great at sales. I'm good at marketing. Um, but I, you know, this is what was interesting about courses. When I was trying to do social media consulting, you know, I would try and try and try to get a contract for, let's say, $2,000, right? Mm -hmm. Or I had the same when I was doing web design. Obviously, I had to chase clients and get contracts. And I, you know, it could take months to nail down that contract. I could go through so many people trying to find the person to hire me. And then my first course, the first course I ever launched in 2008, your backstage pass to Twitter, I remember I made $3,000 from launching that course. And at the time I was like, this is amazing. I used to spend months trying to get $3,000 out of someone. Now mm -hmm. I have it just building this course and I can keep selling the course. So that was a real aha moment for me. And I found it, it was really just well suited to my talents. Awesome. Awesome. So let's continue on your journey. You worked for an agency, you did some freelancing, you started doing these courses. Now, what was the motivation of creating Edgar? So the motivation for creating Edgar, so I was teaching about social media marketing mm -hmm. and obviously, you know, doing social media marketing for my own business and experimenting with the most effective ways to do it. And one of the biggest things I found was that looking at the stats, and of course, this is even more true today, only a tiny percentage of the people who follow you see any given thing that you post. So, you know, when you're posting on Twitter out of the however many people, whether it's 100 people or 500,000 that follow you, less than, always less than 5% can be half a percent, you know, yeah, can well. be really small, are actually going to see that tweet. So I'm like, okay, 95% of people don't see it. Yet the way most people are doing social media is coming up with original status updates multiple a day, every day for the rest of their life, yeah. right? There was no, yeah. no leverage in it at all. So I'm like, this doesn't make sense. We should be repurposing content, repurposing status updates on social media. So I started doing that manually, just keeping a spreadsheet of all my updates and figuring out 
you know, when I could recycle them, on which network, and it was really complicated. But I was teaching people this method and a course, like being like, here's how you put together the spreadsheet and here's how you do it. And people were loving it. People were doing it. People were having great results with it. And so I'm like, why, why? Because social media tools already existed when mm -hmm. Meet Edgar launched. You know, in 2014, when Meet Edgar launched, Buffer was around, Hootsuite was around. So it's not like we were the first social media tool, but we were the first tool to really view social media marketing, this new paradigm and something that can really be largely automated, especially the postings so that you can go in and do the interaction and the engagement and some live updates. But most of the posting, there's no reason it can't really be automated. So, mm -hmm. you know, we were the first tool to do that. And still we're completely different from Buffer or Hootsuite because we just automate so much more of your, your workflow on social media. Yeah. As a marketer, I can say that is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you started Edgar. What, what was the most important skill you brought from your past experience to Edgar? Well, I knew this customer really well. I mm -hmm. mean, that was definitely my biggest advantage starting Edgar and why we had such fast growth right from the beginning because our customer at Edgar is a very, very small business, you know, often a solopreneur, a consultant, a freelancer, a business owner who's running their own social media. And that's who I had already been working with for the past, you know, five or six years, really working with every day, really understanding their needs and how they look at social media and how limited their time is. So I knew the world I was in very well, and I had already established an audience and a reputation in that world. Mm -hmm. You mentioned fast growth, and I want to go into that more. So within one year, you actually made a million dollars in revenue. Mm -hmm. as, as an entrepreneur, that must be extremely overwhelming. <laughs> and <laughs> <How> exciting. <laughs> it, oh, for sure. But when it comes to actually servicing all these new customers, how did you go about doing that? Did, how fast did you have to go grow the team? So, I mean, the beauty of SaaS and the way that we do SaaS is the scaling was actually, has always been pretty painless um, because something that's different about Edgar from other SaaS businesses is we've never done any kind of custom work. So a lot of SaaS businesses will have kind of the prices and plans that you publish, but then they have their larger clients and they're doing custom feature development and custom work and stuff like that. We, we have never done anything like that. We also have never done sales or had any kind of sales team. We're an entirely self-serve model. And what's really cool about that is that it, it scales really well. So, you know, we obviously had to hire some extra people on our customer service team, but I mean, not a lot. Like right now, our customer service team is only two, two and a half people, basically, two full-time and then one who sometimes helps out with oh customer God, service crazy. a little bit. And we have over 5,000 customers, yeah. you know? So we, like the beauty of a self-serve model and making a software that's easy to use and easy to understand and we have good help documentation and stuff like that is it really can scale really well without a huge stressful demand on the team. Oh, wow. I, I never thought of it that way. So within the first year, did you actually hire anybody that year? We, we did. Um, 
I'd be hard pressed to know the exact <laughs> numbers, but I mean, we launched, we launched with a few people on the team because okay. the team had come from LKR social media, the course business. Mm -hmm. So let's say we launched with maybe, you know, five, four or five people on the team. And then, you know, maybe we added, I don't know, four more or something over, over the first year. You have 5,000 customers, no sales, and so few customer service representatives. Yeah. And I mean, that's, again, that's not all SaaS. That's SaaS when you are dealing with the kinds of self-serve customers that, yeah. that we're dealing with. So I think that is an important distinction because some people build SaaS companies, but then they end up doing a bunch of custom work and it's actually really easy to slide into because you get someone who's a bigger contract and they're like, we would use you guys, except we just need this feature. And you're like, okay, well, it'll be worth it just to build it for them. But really you've built yourself kind of a glorified agency if that's the path you go down. So we've just always been really clear that that's, that's not what we do. Yeah. I like that sticking to what you guys know and not deviating from it. Mm. So if you didn't have a sales team, that means you put everything into marketing. Right. Right. What was your marketing like at the beginning? So five, five years ago. And how has it changed since? So, I mean, at the end of the day, we've always been content marketers, organic marketers. You know, most of our customers come from word of mouth. So that's kind of the base that has always been the same and is still the same. Mm -hmm. um, when we first launched, we did actually a lot of paid advertising, which I see a lot of companies save for later. But the nice thing about doing paid in the beginning is that paid, you can see results right away. You know, content marketing, SEO, it can take a while to build that up for a new business. Like you're not going to, mm -hmm. especially SEO, right? You're not going to rank in Google in the first month or probably even first year, depending on how aggressive you are of, of a new business, but you can pay Facebook and Facebook shows you all the people that you pay for every time. Mm -hmm. You know, of course the downside is you stop paying Facebook and now you get no people. So <laughs> I think that it, it does have to be a, a balance. Um, but yeah, when we first launched, we had of course our audience from LKR social media to launch to, uh, we did a lot of paid, advertising and we started you know we always have just done that content marketing foundation that we still do you know you and I were chatting before and you mentioned our newsletter mm -hmm. we have sent out a news well I from all the companies that I've run I remember I started sending out a weekly newsletter January 1st 2009 I'm like I'm gonna send a newsletter every week at the time it was the course business now it's Edgar and that's what we do. <laughs> you know, it it's works. Been, it's been 10 years now. Yep. We've got that newsletter. You know, sometimes it looks a little different. The content changes right over the years, but like yep. we're emailing people every week and that's the kind of basics that they don't sound that exciting to talk about, but like, you know, keep, keep creating content, keep blogging, keep writing newsletters. Like it all, it all adds up. Yeah. And like you said before, you also grew an audience of 75,000 people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it works. Something yeah. works. <laughs> Something's yeah. working for you. So I was, as I was telling you before we started the interview, I actually discovered Edgar and, and you through a podcast. And in the specific podcast, you actually talk about how important it is to choose marketing tactics. And 
how it's just as important to choose which marketing tactics you're not going to use. Can you speak to us more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, marketing can be really overwhelming (laughs) because (laughs) there's no, there's no formula for it. Right. I mean, this is true really of everything in business, but Mm -hmm. it's really easy to look around at what other companies do and you think, Oh, like they're on YouTube. If we, if we got a lot of subscribers on YouTube like that, that would work. Or like they do, you know, Instagram stories every day that people love. Maybe we need to do that. Or they send a daily email out with an inspirational quote every morning. Maybe we should do that. So it's like, there's so many things that you can do and there's never this clear answer if that's going to work for you or not. Mm -hmm. Right. You can't just like look at YouTube and be like, I know that'll work or I know that won't work. You don't really know if any of this stuff works until you try it. So it can be really, really easy to spend a lot of time just to challenge internally the business that you're selling on behalf of. If you believe the product or service needs work or if it needs, um, needs assistance with being delivered better, you know, you've seen a lot of startups in America and around the world. They have, um, you know, people who are engaged in this client success team now and the whole department of customer success and client success and is, is paramount because that literally is the place where once a sale is made, all the work's done to keep that client happy, but also it gives a unique opportunity for you to seek feedback and get a deeper understanding of what the client actually wants. So I would say um, don't discount the fact that you can show that you have an understanding for the customer by taking an interest in their business journey today and also what challenges they're facing. And you can use that to get them to uncover other things that they may need that you might be able to devise as a product or service or at minimum find a partner that can deliver it for them and you can make a clip off that. Yeah, that's great advice. And what do you think was the hardest thing you had to sell? I'm just curious. <sighs> well, other than selling yourself to yourself, <laughs> because we all <laughs> go through the trials and trepidation of, you know, trying to um, get ourselves up for sales activity um, because there's, there's, there's so much that goes into being in a high performing state before you pick up the phone and you begin selling, but it can play such a role. But I would say the hardest thing to sell, I reckon it was when I worked somewhere and I had to sell people to want to redesign their website on a, on a proprietary software that delivered, um, a website. So I'll give you an example, right? We all know that Squarespace and Wix mm. and WordPress exist now and pretty much anyone can go and build their own website. And the beauty of a platform like WordPress, for example, is that it's open source. So um, it can be easily um, manipulated and built upon and it's commonly used. I worked at a firm where we had our own software that was limited, obviously, in its ability to update. And rather than undertaking the exercise of transitioning all of our clients to WordPress so that they could now live in an environment where we could work with them on going forever, we had to try and make money out of the fact that we wanted to get them to stay on an old system and we wanted to try and get them to spend money on redesigning their website and remain on the old cruddy system. So my challenge, I had to, I had to sell that because that was my role, knowing mm-hmm. full well that the risk was the client was going to recognize and do their own research and understand that WordPress existed and it was a much better solution. So it was a short-term win for a long-term loss. Mm-hmm. That was probably the hardest thing to sell. 
Yeah, that is tough, especially if WordPress was new around that time or just started becoming popular. Well, it had been popular for a while, but oh. this business didn't want to lose. Um, it had about you know, 2,000 clients with websites, all paying in the vicinity of $50 a month in hosting. So when you do the math, that turns out to be a lot of money, right? Monthly recurring revenue and you're not doing a lot for it. So the pain associated internally with moving the model is hugely disruptive. So, you know, I was tasked with the task of pressing on with that, but um, long-term it would mean there would have been attrition and people would have realized and moved. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That's tough. And you have so much experience in selling so many different kinds of products and services. Can you tell the listeners the difference between selling a product and selling a service? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's, mu it's much more difficult to sell a product uh, as it's just a widget or it's just a tool unless you're selling to someone who um, desperately needs it right now. However, um, if you were to think about someone knocking on the door of an elderly person looking to sell them a recliner chair that has a massager built in and it's great for arthritis and increasing mobility and blood flow, um, I could guarantee that that salesperson is still not going to sell that chair based upon its features alone. That salesperson is going to sell that chair based upon the relationship they build when they come in the door, they sit down for a cup of tea, they talk to the elderly person about their life um, and what drives them. And then the product would be a secondary. So I would argue that in that scenario, the service that's being sold is the ability for someone to understand the customer, the elderly person, and then give them something that's going to alleviate some pain or create some comfort in their life. But there'll always be an association ongoing with um, the, the good feeling that they got from meeting the person who sold it to them, who understood them. So if I understand um, but, correctly, you're actually saying that there's always a service component to selling a product. Yeah, totally. I mean, aside from yeah. going to the vending machine and purchasing a soda, <laughs> um, which is a product, mm -hmm. um, absolutely. And then, I mean, we all know, or, or in case we don't, um, taking the product out of the equation and making it more about the relationship and, and the pain that you're going to relieve the client, that t allows you to take price out of the equation. Um, and that's obviously where you don't want to be. So if you can talk less about the bells and whistles and widgets and features and the price and talk more about the difference it's going to make to someone, mm -hmm. um, this is 101. We'll, I'm, not, I'm not the first person to say this to you, but um, it, it's amazing when you say it, how much it rings true um, because it changes your mindset when you walk through the door or pick up the phone and sell to that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is a great almost like reminder, like, oh, yes. Of course, there's always a service component to a product. And it kind of kind of brings you back and reminds you. So, yeah, I like that. And how, how is it different selling for an employer versus selling for your own company? How was that experience for you? Uh, difficult because it was, it was hard to separate myself when I had my own business from being just the salesperson to also being the person ultimately responsible for delivering the service, even if I was mm. going to use an employee to deliver it. Mm. So um, because like I said, 
because a lot of the clients on my network, they would come to me even when their my employee wasn't uh, getting them a result, they'd still associate and come to me with uh, wanting to address it. And it's very difficult as a business owner not to take uh, feedback that's of a non-positive nature. It's, it's very difficult not to take that personally. Oh yeah, that must have been tough. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough because <clears throat> you start to think straight away that you have a deficiency and it's something you've done wrong or it's not working. Whereas we all know that when you're selling marketing services, there is such a huge error. Um, it's not error. There's such a huge element of trial and error. And, mm -hmm. and you have to almost get the client to buy into allowing you to try on their behalf. And obviously, you know, things change all the time. So if you can sign someone to come onto a retainer and be your client, there's an end goal in mind um, to achieve over a six, 12 month period you still want to make sure that they agree and see that you are going to be trying things on their behalf. Some will work, some won't. And you'll implore a process to understand what has and be able to test and then iterate. But you really want someone's buy-in so that when something doesn't work, they understand that you're still following a process and it's going to help you get to something that will work. Um, that's probably the biggest thing when, you, when you're running your own thing. I like that. I like that. And for people who the entrepreneurs listening, aspiring entrepreneurs who are listening, and let's say they're not too good at selling their product or service or, or just themselves. There are so many sources online for people to get tips, advice, as you said before, like selling 101. How, what, what do people need to focus on the most when just getting started? Well, I would say that there's so many uh, dominant and influential people online who have something to say about how you should go about things. Mm -hmm. What I would say is if you to stumble across a Gary V or a Grant Cardone or a, you know, uh, an equivalent, right? I would just deliberately find the voice that resonates with you most first mm -hmm. and then stay there a while. So don't, don't worry about, oh, I might be missing out by not hearing another one of these powerful entrepreneurs' perspective. Um, I'll go out and limb and say that most of them are regurgitating a lot of the similar stuff and a lot of them are trying stuff that works and that doesn't themselves. They've just got a bigger team so they can mm -hmm. do it quicker and find out quicker. But just pick one. And it's important to resonate with a voice that you identify with. So I've paid for online courses before in the past to help navigate me through starting a business, which I highly recommend, but I deliberately stuck with one. I didn't then go, Oh, there's a better one over there. I'm just going to transition. I remain with the one and that'll, it'll save you from being overwhelmed. Um, yeah. And then uh, not wanting to take any action because you'll feel paralyzed. That's great advice. Just focus, focus and get started and take action as fast as possible. Totally. Yeah, love it. So if you don't mind, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you more personal questions. So on your okay. LinkedIn, you say that your favorite book is Think and Grow Rich. Yes. Okay. Now that's a book most people know. I have not read it yet. And I'm curious, what is your, why, why is this your favorite book? What, what did you take away from it that made it the best in your eyes? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say um, we ask the question on our show a lot, best and worst piece of advice uh, that people have ever been given. And quite often the element that determines whether 
a piece of advice that doesn't sound good or bad, um, what determines it being really bad or really good is often timing. So sometimes you can receive really good advice at a particular time and it serves you well, but then another time it doesn't. Think and Grow Rich, I read that book over the Christmas holidays just recently and I had it on my list and I'd started a couple of times, but this time I actually absorbed it. I was active whilst reading, making notes, and I followed the instructions religiously and that's been the key difference, but I was ready. And so it may not be the best book I ever read before I die. Who knows? But it was, was one of the few that I couldn't put down and I was excited to progress through. And that just has to do with timing. For me, it really was about um, giving into following its process and trusting. Um, and it has to do with where you're at personally. And um, yeah, so that's, there's no real reason why it's a better book than others. It's just timing was right for me. And I think that's so, a great you know, answer. Like, yeah. Thank you. Because yeah. a, a lot of things in our life is timing. It's, yep. it's great yeah, because absolutely. of timing, right? So yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. For and, example, the timing of having me on your show yeah. uh, means that you're just going to blow up. The internet, <laughs> you know, as soon as this goes live, um, there's risk that Spotify may crash for at least 15 minutes because the subscriber rate and downloads is just going to I guess I'll, I'll have to let them know yeah <laughs> maybe you need to give them a heads up in advance yeah. Brandon Burns know? is going to be on my show it might pose a problem for you guys correct <laughs> love it okay so another personal question yep what does success mean to you well everyone talks about um success being about fulfilling your why now no one really talks about um the the dirty yucky financial uh, mm -hmm. elements of success but interestingly um in the book think and grow rich it actually tells you that you have to come up with a statement for your vision board for your 10-year goal and it has to encompass where you want to be and what you want to be doing but it forces you to attribute a financial goal to it as well and I, I really struggled with that initially because for me, my, my 10 year goal and vision is a creative one and doesn't involve uh, wealth. However, I've trusted in the book and I've associated a figure with it because I can see how the book uh, and, and the writer Napoleon Hill forces you to use the monetary figure for success to not be afraid of and not uh, fear wanting to have a financial goal. And the reality is that it will help contribute so much to achieving your 10 year goal, but also um, it'll facilitate so many things along the journey that you need to be able to get there. Um, so success for me looks like in 10 years time, I want to have my own late night television show in the US, uh, in the United States of America. If television still exists, it probably will in some other different format in 10 mm -hmm. years time. Yeah but it's important for you to recognize that as my big North star metric, because it appears to be the, you know, the Olympics of TV hosting. Mm -hmm. And then I've attributed the goal of a one of a master wealth of $20 million us by that time as well. And then that sort of resolves the statement that the books told me I have to have in front of me to uh, run toward. And then the other thing it's, it talks about is you have to envisage yourself already in possession of the thing you want. Mm -hmm. So 
uh, as much as we shouldn't project and fantasize into the future about not being where we want to be by imagining ourselves there, we have to have that element and that feeling of we're already there, we've already got it, and we act and operate like we are that person. And I think what happens is here's the 10-year goal, here's where you are now, and that just starts moving the needle back towards where you're actually at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see it. what I did there? Yeah. For those of you listening, I used my two index fingers <laughs> and I showed a extreme reduction in disparity between the current state and the 10-year goal. It was fantastic, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. It was spot on. I loved it. <laughs> Excellent. Do you know uh, what your, your statement is? Yeah, so by the, by the 29th of December 2029, I will have my own late night television talk show on US cable television, and I will have master wealth of $20 million. Wow. Okay, so really... Don't judge me, peeps. No, <laughs> no this is awesome because they're going to be judging me right now, what I'm about to tell you. I made a vision board and... Well my like I put like a, a quote <laughs> yes I, I put a quote and the quote is nothing like yours it's just for 2020 though and it is yep. <clears throat> I'll get it together now I never said this out loud so now I'm kind of getting shy yeah. this is excellent <laughs> it's more moves more balls more money <laughs> very nice um, the three it. M's. <laughs> yeah. I think that you're going to have incredible traction with the first and the last, um, <laughs> at the middle, you may struggle in a physical mean, sense. Meaning like putting myself out there, you know, having yes. the confidence to get out there. That's what that means. And I had to make gotcha. it like short and snippy so I can remember it. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. So. Just before wrapping things up, Brandon, um, what are you working on today? And what are you working on in 2020? So today we're working on addressing getting a scaled amount of users to our new platform. So we've done a really good job at our incubator of finding all those key things that a startup needs to be successful. Money, mentor, founder, co-founder, first customer, um, and education and support, right, in a group setting. We've done that really well in person. We've rolled out another incubator in another part of Victoria. We've done it really well. But if we were to take our own medicine and apply being able to scale, we need to understand, well, how do we find that person in northern Queensland? How do we find that person in remote Western Australia? How do we find that person in the, right on the east coast of Australia who has the same problem that we can't currently touch and interact with? So we launched 10 weeks ago our own platform, runwayvirtual.co, and it does exactly that. It now scales our ability to find an investor for the person in Queensland, in Northern Australia, who's isolated, and find that investor maybe in the Southern part of Australia. And that to us is our passion now. So we're growing that at a rapid rate. We're trying to get to 10,000 users. And on the other side, we're bootstrapping the business by selling the ability for local councils, and member organizations to buy a private group within the platform and pay us an annual license for that. So we're trying to fund our business by bootstrapping and we're trying to push as quickly as possible through partners and things like this 
people to participate on the platform and come and join us. We want to be the, the, the destination and the home for early stage startups right across Australia. And then maybe who knows, find a way to do that in three years overseas. Um, so right now it's about how do we give the startup the most enviable and most pleasurable user experience, give them what they need on platform to make them stay and then do that for more and more people as we go. I love it. I love it. That seems like a, a lot of work for 2020. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's not without help. Hence why it's been great coming on shows like yours and, and really generating some global reach. We have people on the platform from all over the world. Um, and it's just brilliant to be able to share that message beyond our shores. I'm so grateful to have been able to come on your show, Laura. Um, I know we share a similar last name, sort of. Mine's Burns, <laughs> yours is Bernhard. Yeah, but, it's very close. Um, other than that, I feel like you really get what we're trying to do and vice versa. So it's been good to be able to share that with an audience, you know, in a massive market like Canada. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show here with us today. And uh, we're definitely going to keep in touch. So thanks. Legend. Thanks, Laura. Before ending this episode, I want to review some points Brandon made. After telling us about his experience on Australian Idol, he tried to disassociate himself from the entertainment industry. However, Brandon points out that it's important to embrace what makes you different because we only get a few huge differentiators in our lifetime. I also want to highlight how sales and marketing is literally in everything we do, even when forming a band. Finally, I want to discuss timing. As Brandon mentioned, he read Think and Grow Rich at the right time, at a time he was ready and willing to execute and make a difference in his life. So if something isn't working out for you right now, it might not be the right time. Thank you so much for listening, everyone.